Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are going to be looking at verses 17 to 25. As we've been looking at this book in 1 Timothy, one of the things that we have noticed is that there has been an, an enormous stress upon the responsibilities of church leaders for the church, what they are supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be doing it, what kind of people they are supposed to be. And the question remains, is it only a one-way street or is it a two-way street? That is, is their responsibility the other way as well? If church leaders have a responsibility for the church and some responsibilities and some leadership roles that they are to fulfill, what is the responsibility of a church for its leaders? Is there any? And this is a question that you will find uh, unanswered, left alone in many churches. That is, there is no responsibility expected or asked of or demanded by those who attend a church for that church itself. Many churches today, it is expected, it is hoped that people may give, but that they will offer up outside of whatever they may give, whatever service they may render, there is no authority that they may have within the church, no responsibility that they may take. But Paul lays out a different set of expectations that we as believers have, not just for one another, and not just from the, for the leaders for the church, but the church for its own leaders. It is a, a two-way street. And part of, you will remember, part of what we see in First Timothy is that Paul's main thrust, his goal, is that in chapter 3, the, the, the church is to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That is, the church is to hold up the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, and it is to shine it out. It is to support it. It is to display it. And so part of, or not part, but everything that he has written is leading to and directed from that main idea that the church is to be a bright display and a bright support for the truth of God's word and the hope of the gospel. And for that to, for the church to be what God calls it to be, it demands that there be responsibility on the part of the leaders. But as we see here, There is also now responsibility on the part of the church for its leaders and to its leaders. So what we want to look at this morning is how that responsibility plays out. We see it in other passages. We might think of Matthew 18. We see the authority given to a local church. There, there's an issue within the church and it begins to grow in its importance. And so others are involved in dealing with this particular sin issue of a brother or a sister until it eventually rises. And we find that the last court of appeals, so to speak, the last body, the body with the the greatest authority within the church, isn't a pastor, nor is it the elders. It is the church. Bring it before the church, Christ says. More than this, when we see the, Paul's letter to the Philippians, he makes it clear he's going to address a number of things in that book. He's got both encouragements and challenges to them, but he writes to the church that is in Philippi with the elderseers, with the overseers and deacons. It's as, almost as if those, these two other groups, they're important, but they're not the most important body of that church. 
And then when we see Paul addressing the situation in the church in his letter to the Galatians, and addressing the false teaching that has begun to show itself there amongst those churches, part of what Paul calls that church to do is to get rid of the leaders. They are to hold their leaders accountable, to be responsible for them. The church, the body, has responsibility, has authority. And Paul lays out some of the responsibilities in this critical passage. So before we jump in and dive into God's word, would you join me in prayer as we ask God for his blessing on us as we study it this morning? Father, you have spoken and all your words are good. All your words are true. I pray this morning that even as we look into your word that your word will expose our hearts, expose our own shortcomings, and it will, by your mercy, cause us to be, to display the truth of the gospel more brightly, to support the truth more clearly, that we together may honor your name where you have put us and around the world. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing that we see for the first responsibility that we see placed upon a church for its leaders, to its leaders, is that a church is called to provide for its leaders. We see this in the first two verses, verses 17 and verse 18. Read, with, read them with me. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of, its, of his wages, is worthy of his pay. Part of what we see here is he, he has moved from the very beginning of this chapter talking about honor widows and now honoring these elders. And you'll notice elders is plural here. Here he's not speaking of merely the elderly, those who are older in a church. He is speaking primarily what he has used that, this term before. He is speaking of a, a, a body of individuals that the church has called to be and appointed to to oversee, to rule, to, to care. And that's where that word is, to, to rule well. is the same word we saw when we were discussing back in chapter 3, the responsibilities of pastors and elders. That same word, to rule the church well, here they are to rule. And it's that same word that we saw that is used to describe the work of the Good Samaritan. He cared for the needs of the person that he found lying in the road. It is that kind of care, that kind of ruling that is being described here. It is a care, it is an oversight, it is a love done for the church. And he says these who rule well are to be counted worthy of double honor. And on one level, he is merely speaking of encouragement. They are worthy of encouragement. And indeed, Brothers and sisters, I can attest, our elders of our church are worthy of your encouragement, are worthy of your honor. They serve, they sacrifice, they put themselves into hard positions to serve this church, to serve Christ. But here he is describing a particular subset. 
of those that the church has set aside for a particular task. And just as honor, back in verse 3, honor widows who are really widows, honor does not merely mean respect, but it had this idea of ongoing care and assistance that is given out to this group, this vulnerable group within the church. So here, double honor, they are worthy of their pay, their provision, they're worthy of the church's care. But the elders who will well be counted worthy of double honor. Here he is talking about particularly those elders who labor in the word and doctrine. This isn't the only time that Paul has expressed this idea. We, we read about it. We saw it earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul is talking to the Corinthians. And he's kind of justifying himself. He says, look, just because I didn't take pay from you didn't mean it wasn't right for me to. It would have been right for me to receive pay from you. It would have been right for you to provide for me. I didn't receive it for the sake of the gospel. And it has to do with the particular situation there in Corinth. Why Paul didn't want to deal with them or or didn't want to receive from them pay. He didn't want to muddy the waters. He was acting in some ways as a missionary there. But he described there in verse 14, and we read it earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that that those who serve the gospel, those who proclaim the gospel, ought to get their living by the gospel. In Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he thanks them for how they have financially partnered with him to supply his needs. And Paul supports this idea that those who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. That is, they they are worthy of the church's provision. He supports that with two quotations from Scripture in verse 18. The first is taken from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25.4, where do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Picture a an oxen, a beast, a burden, and it is pulling a large stone, and that stone is grinding up the grain so to make it edible, to make it usable. And part of what the farmers may have done to, to make sure that all the grain remains their own, they would have, may have, used a muzzle to keep the oxen from, from eating some grain, from taking a bite of that grain from time to time. And so there in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 25, God gives this command that those who, that, 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 that they are not to muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. And Paul makes application in 1 Corinthians 9. He says it wasn't merely because God cared about ox. It was also, he says this, also for our sake. That we might know that those who serve the church may also get their living by the church. That is, we share with them part of what God has blessed us with because they serve us. And so he quotes First I'm sorry, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Do not muzzle an ox while it is trading out the grain. And the second quote there in verse 18, the laborer is worthy of his wages. That comes from the Gospel of Luke, from Christ's own lips, in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The laborer is worthy of his wages. And Paul takes these two quotations, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, one from Christ himself, and he puts them together, and he applies it to the church there in Ephesus. 
And he tells Timothy to ensure that the church is providing for its leaders, particularly those who rule well, that is, those who labor in preaching and teaching. And this raises a number of questions. We might think of just two of them. What is the goal of of, of paying or providing for your pastor? Some churches have had that philosophy that it is their goal to keep the pastor poor and humble and to let him learn to be dependent on the Lord. Certainly that is a very sanctifying approach, but one that is going to cause grief. Other churches have a different philosophy. It is they almost treat their pastors as royalty, giving them enormous salaries, paying them, providing for them well beyond what would would be needed. And that seems to counteract other passages where we are to find that those who labor for the Lord while they are provided for, they are not to be indulgent. They are not to be serving the Lord merely for that gain. What we find hinted at here. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Part of the principle there is not that the oxen is now just able to eat whatever and how much ever he wants, that there's a big pile of grain that he's just chomping away at, but it's that he is eating enough so that when he gets tired, he is able to eat and gain strength so that he may continue his work. The picture is is that the The church provides for its pastor to free him up to do the work of the ministry. Not merely to to make life easy, not to keep him poor, but but so that he is able to do all that God calls him to do. It seems that Paul's desire isn't just that churches pay their pastors. I don't think that's his main desire here. His main desire connected back with chapter 3 in verses 15 to 16, what his main desire here is that churches display the gospel, that churches grow in health. And for healthy churches to exist requires hard work. It requires long hours. It requires perseverance. It requires someone's life. And certainly it would be cheaper, easier for a pastor to be bivocational or to not be paid at all. Think of all the ways that the church may, all the things that the church may do if it didn't have to support leaders. But providing for its leaders is one of the chief ways that God gives to a church that we as Christians invest in our long-term spiritual health. That we value the word of God taught and preached and urged upon us so much that we are willing to give someone some of our, what we, the Lord gives to us that they may be set aside by the church for the work of preaching, for the work of teaching, for the work of discipleship, for the work of counsel, for the work of care. And we love the Lord. We love his work so much. That's the goal. That's the emphasis. Paul isn't concerned merely that that churches pay, he is concerned about the health of churches. That seems to be what Paul is after. And this seems to connect it while he calls this worthy of double honor. He doesn't merely say that let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of their wages. He could have easily said that. Instead, he uses this term double honor. 
And it seems part of what he wants us to see is that we are to, we are to show respect. Not merely to them, but to the work that they are called to. It seems that the Lord isn't just after our wallets, he's after our hearts. You notice the Lord never anywhere tells us that he loves a big giver. But he loves a cheerful giver, doesn't he? Here, it seems that part of what Paul is telling us and reminding us by the Spirit of God is that we give not merely out of duty. Not merely, we ought not to give merely out of a, a, a desire to check something off. We have fulfilled this role. We have given this percentage. It's not a percentage that he is interested in. He is after our hearts. Honor. Honor. But it's not just to provide for their leaders. There is something else. And that is churches are responsible to discipline their leaders wisely. Churches are responsible to discipline their leaders wisely. You can see this in verses 19 to 21. Paul writes to Timothy saying, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, those who persist in sin, continue in sin, those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also, that the whole body, you might say, that the whole church may also fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. Here, Paul is calling Churches to deal with sin and conflict, not just in their midst, but also with those who lead. Be they pastors, elders, we are responsible for one another. And part of what he is telling us is that church leaders are not above public rebuke. Church leaders are not above sin. It reminds us that there is going to be, till the end of time, till Christ returns and comes back for his people, all church leaders are going to be prone to sin. But here he is telling us those who persist in this, those who continue in sin, despite warnings, despite those coming alongside, despite confrontation, these we have a responsibility to deal with and to deal with in a responsible, wise way. And the first way he lays out, verse 19, is that we are to discipline our leaders in such a way that protects them. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Paul is not saying that church leaders are to be held to a higher or better standard, or rather, they are not to be treated differently than anyone else. That's not what he's saying at all. This idea of two or three witnesses, you will find in the Old Testament, no one is to be charged or considered guilty without two or three witnesses to verify. So the same standard that is imposed upon the evaluation of anybody's wrongdoing is to be held to pastors and church leaders. Part of what Paul seems to be addressing here, and we do not know for certain, but it appears that perhaps there was an Ephesus where Timothy was, where Timothy was serving, that there was an ongoing issue that people were continually raising complaints and that there may have been treating every complaint, every unfounded accusation as if it was a, 
a, a disreputable offense or it was a disqualifying offense. And Paul seems to try and, with this rule, he seems to want to say, hey, the same standard that you apply to everyone else ought to be applied to pastors, ought to be applied to elders, ought to be applied to church leaders. They are not held to a higher standard in terms of they are not held to a separate standard of of a higher need for evidence, but rather they are to be held to the same standard of everyone else. And the same level of evidence that is required to accuse anyone else ought to be used for them. Paul is trying to protect church leaders from false accusations, from baseless accusations. Almost every church I've been a part of has had an, some instance where they have dealt with some kind of false accusations and genuine and true accusations. I'll never forget situation here years ago. There was a woman who had just started visiting our church. And as she had started coming, uh, it had become known pretty quickly amongst Pastor Peters and I that she had made unfounded accusation against a number of pastors of churches in our area, and she had kind of jumped from church to church. Well, in short, within two weeks, two, three weeks of her being here, one service, and this was during the time before COVID, when we would have a time in the service where we would shake one another's hands. Do you remember that? Can, you, can your memory go back that far? And that awkward moment where you're turning around and you're getting to know everyone around you, where she was sitting behind one of our elders, and that elder sitting next to his wife turned around and reached out his hand and shook it, and she shook it. And because I knew what I knew about her, I was kind of watching where she was at, who she was interacting with. And sure enough, after the service, she went up to Pastor Peters and she began to make an accusation against this older elder that he had made some sexual advances toward her which amounted to him raising, reaching out his hand to shake hers. That was an unfounded, baseless accusation. But certainly there have been, in this church's history and elsewhere, there have been accusations made against leaders that need to be dealt with. And a church has a responsibility to deal with those. And part of what he is doing here in this verse, first verse, verse 19, is to not allow a charge against an elder that is baseless, that is unfounded. But that does not mean elders are not therefore to be held unresponsible. He goes on, verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. A church has a responsibility to discipline its members. Not just discipline its members, but to discipline its leaders. And to not do it privately. But if, if in the course of Matthew 18, it's dealt with privately and there's no repentance, there's no response at all, but we're persisting in sin, then the matter is to be taken further up and eventually it is to be dealt with publicly. And so often... Churches deal with matters with their leaders. They, they deal with it by sweeping it under the rug, hoping it will go away, hoping no one will notice. Maybe the leader will leave and we won't ever have to address it. We're trying to save face. Maybe his embarrassment, maybe embarrassment for the church. And Paul doesn't want that. It is the responsibility of a church to hold its leaders accountable. 
Why? Well, if a leader is engaged in sin and he is unrepentant toward it, if he is unwilling to acknowledge it in any way, how can he then talk about sin? How can a church that permits sin in its leaders ever rightly, without, hypo- without hypocrisy, speak to the sin of anyone else? And if we can't talk about sin, how can we talk about the grace of God? How can we talk about God who is holy and is offended by our sin? How our sin is an offense and a rebellion against him? We can't. Slowly but surely, it, it, with a church that, if we as a church and churches that do not deal with sin with their leaders... It's not merely that we lose our ability to speak to matters. We more, lose the moral high ground. That's, that's not it at all. We lose the ability to powerfully and rightly proclaim the gospel. And so Paul is adamant that a church deal with its leaders. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. Why does he do it? Why is this necessary? That the rest also may fear. That the whole church may be warned. It is a a terrible and grave matter when those, when church leaders especially fall. They are held up examples, especially when it is someone who is the preacher or teacher. And yet, we as a church have a responsibility not only to provide, but to hold our leaders accountable, to discipline. But he gives some warning there as we carry out this process. Verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that your observance of these things, that you do these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. Paul knows how easy it is for leaders to either be loved or hated. Some, I never liked him. And as soon as an accusation is raised, they, they latch onto it. It must be true. Others, I've listened to him talk. I've watched his life. He would never do anything like that. And so we respond not with impartiality, but we respond with favoritism in our hearts. And Paul urges us to weigh these matters without partiality, which will mean that we weigh it wisely, carefully, slowly. All this leads to Paul's last commands in this section. Churches need to provide for their leaders to be ready to discipline their leaders, but also, therefore, they must carefully select their leaders. Verses 22 to 25. He says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. That image of laying on hands pictured there in the Old Testament of kind of authorizing them. And here we have this picture that it is the church who is authorizing its leaders, affirming its leaders through the symbol of laying on of hands. And so he says, do not lay on hands anyone, on anyone, hastily, 
That is, you are not to rush to judgment on someone. Just because someone is good in business, just because someone knows money well, does not mean we put them in charge of it. Just because someone dresses well, comes from a good family, these are not reasons to immediately affirm someone as an elder, as a leader, as a pastor. Just because someone speaks well doesn't mean that they ought to be an elder. Those qualifications for... Leadership in a church are found in 1 Timothy 3, two chapters earlier. Here he is reminding us not to lay on hands on anyone, not to ordain, not to set someone aside for this ministry on anyone hastily. Why? Well, in doing that, we will share in other people's sins. That is, if we name someone too quickly, they, they, they seem to, on the surface, they seem to be good. They seem like they are worthy uh, of leadership within the church, and so we quickly rush them in. And then sin begins to become manifested. Verses 24 and 25 lay this out. Some men's sins are clearly evident. That is, some people, their sin is They wear it on their sleeves. They walk in and it becomes immediately obvious. While others, he says, those some men follow later. So some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. That is, those are are not obvious. And they only become clear over time. Part of what we're going to see of any church leader, of any person, is that immediately they may present themselves well, but over time you get to know them. Over time, you get to see their faults, their foibles, their, their human finiteness, their, their weaknesses as a person, where they tend to fall. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about sin in someone's life. He says immediately it may not be, may not be obvious. Everything on the surface may look good. But over time, over months and weeks, perhaps years, it becomes evident there is serious sin lurking behind the background. So Paul says, do not rush to judgment. Our judgment is fallible. We are not blessed with omniscience about people. It goes on in verse 25. Not only are we not to rush to judgment with someone because we, we may not know the sin that is going on in their lives, But we also must not rush to judgment because there may be something good going on with that person. That person may be involved in good works that we just do not know about. So he says, likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. And we might, because those good works are clearly evident, we might say, that person, look all that they're doing. Wow, that's a leader. That's someone we want to follow. But he goes on. And there are those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. That is, some people, some people serve in such a way that their works are like the other person. They wear their righteousness on their sleeve. That is, they serve, and they serve in such a way that it gains the notice of others. It's easy to see. But others serve, and they serve behind the scenes. They serve in a way that isn't noticed. They serve in in a way that may not catch the eye. It lacks all the flash and the sizzle. 
And it only becomes apparent over time how valuable this person's service is. So Paul says, do not rush to judgment. Because some sins, while they may be readily obvious, others are not. And so you need time to watch. You need time to get to know. And if you rush too hastily in this process, you become someone who shares in this person's sins. And you cause that sin now to, you expose the entire church to that sin. But likewise, just as there are some sins that are obvious and some that are not so, there are some good works, some, some acts of service that are clear, obvious, and there are many others that are behind the scenes. Do not rush to judgment. And then we read in verse 23, you may have noticed I skipped over it. He gives us this confusing aside. Well, it's clear on its own, right? He tells, no longer drink only water. You might say, Timothy, here's very personal. Timothy, don't drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and, and your frequent ailments. Clearly, Timothy was not a man of good health. And so Paul is saying, look, Stop drinking only water. You need to drink some wine. It's going to help you physically. This is medicinal. You need to drink it. It's okay, good. He's giving some good health advice. But doesn't that strike you as an odd thing to put into the Bible? Of all the advice to give to Timothy, here's some, you know, take a little Tylenol. What does that have to do with anything? What help does that give to any of us? In fact, it's, it's, it's an odd placement, isn't it? Do not lay hands on someone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And it's almost like a footnote. If, this was, if he was writing today, using today's English grammar, it would be a parenthesis, parentheses would surround this mark, or a footnote leading us to the very bottom. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. And your frequent ailments. What is Paul doing? How does this verse in any way serve us? That's, a, that's the question, right? As I was studying and preparing for this passage, I found it interesting that several people just kind of skipped over this verse in their explanation. As if it didn't have any connection to the text at all. But if you will just meditate on verses 22 to 25, especially there at the end. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. So if you rush to judgment on someone, bring someone in who is going, who's got serious sin, now exposing the church and now causing you to be a sharer in their sins, then he says, keep yourself pure. And then the very next phrase, don't drink wine, don't drink water only. It was part of the practice in some parts of the ancient world, some of the beliefs that to keep oneself pure, they would drink nothing except water. They would, they, they would walk and they would drink and eat. They would guard their diet so strictly to maintain some level of spiritual purity. They tied their, their diet with their spiritual health. We see the same thing today, do we not? People, without knowing it, will quote Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, when he says that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, they will often today, you'll hear someone use that phrase, my body is a temple. And that usually precedes some kind of explanation of how they have 
structured their diet in such a way to keep their temple pure. Almost as if that diet is now raising them up on some spiritual enlightenment plane. Paul is undercutting that here. No, you are not built up, you are not made spiritually healthy because you practice some strict diet, drinking only water. No, you have a physical ailment. You can drink wine also. Take this for your stomach's sake. Here he is undermining that the only way that we, or one of the primary ways that we keep ourselves pure is through physical means. It is not. Spiritual health isn't determined by what you put in your body. But rather, it is signaled by what comes out of your body. That is, what comes out of your mouth. Paul seems to be undermining the common idea that purity is connected not with one's relationship with God, but with one's relationship with food, with one's relationship with certain rigorous, strict practices. But there's another way this verse serves us. And it shows us something about the very nature of the Bible itself. In many places throughout Old Testament and New, we are told that the scriptures are the very words of God. That this is the very word of God. We call it the Bible, but it is God's word. And it is true in all its parts. It is without error on everything it speaks. And some, to maintain that idea, which we see laid out so clearly in the Bible, some, to maintain that idea, they have argued that perhaps the only way that that could have happened is if God directly dictated his word to us. As if he had dictated his word to Paul or to the other writers, and they simply wrote down what God was directly telling them. So the situation would look like Paul sit down, Paul goes down to his writing desk, and he hears a voice in the Lord, all right, are you ready? You got your pen, got some ink, good. Write these words. Dear Timothy, dear Timothy. And he goes on and on. But that doesn't seem to fit, especially when we come to verse 23, which seems to be an aside. And it's almost as if you can read it, if you cut that verse out, you would, it sounds as if you would almost miss, miss nothing. It's very a personal note from Paul to Timothy. It seems almost inappropriate for Paul to write it in a public letter, and yet he does. Part of what we learn about the scriptures from the scriptures is that God does not inspire his word by merely dictating it word for word to the authors. We do have situations in the Old Testament clearly and in the New where that happened. Where they heard a voice and God tells them to write this down. Or God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah in particular in one situation and he instructs him, write down these words. And when the king doesn't like what God says, he tosses it up, he rips it up, throws it away. And in a note of ironic humor, God simply gives Jeremiah those same words again. What this verse shows us 
is what we see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here, what we see is that verse 23, as odd as it is within the flow of the passage, is as much scripture, is as much the inerrant word of God, is as much God's word as the very words of Christ which we have recorded in the, in the Gospels. It is as authoritative as that. It is as God-breathed as those words. It is not that Paul is writing this, being dictated to, I need to write this word and now the next word. No, what we see throughout Old Testament and New is that each writer writes out of his own experience. He writes out of his own understanding. Out of, he writes uh, with his own limitations. So each writer is unique. They each have different grammar, each different vocab, each different things that they bring to the table that shapes the way they write. And we can even see that over time. We see that particularly with some of those, like the gospel, I'm sorry, with the apostle Paul, and also the gospel, I'm sorry, the apostle John, who wrote throughout their lives, wrote over the periods of decades. And we can see the development of their vocabulary and how they change over time, how their use of words develops. We can trace these things out. What we find is that these men are writing as they are moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that it is the same Holy Spirit who is moving them to write, who is also preserving them as they write from writing anything that would be wrong. He is the one who is bearing them along. So that each mark, each stroke of the pen, though they are the ones who are writing it, Yet it is God himself who is directing them. So when we read about Christians and churches being responsible for their elders, being responsible for their leaders, to provide for them, to hold them accountable, to discipline them, and to select them carefully. When we, when we read these words, we are not reading merely Paul's advice column. This isn't Paul's personal blog where he's just putting up his thoughts about what, what, a, what does a healthy church look like? This is the word of God for us. Church leaders have a responsibility given to them by God for the church. And the church has responsibility given to them by God, given to you by God for its leaders. Brothers and sisters in Christ, leadership in the church matters. And just as leaders have responsibilities, so do you. And the goal of all of this by Paul, which we have hit on again and again and again, is that the church may flourish, that the gospel may go out and forward, that we together may be built up and the name of Christ be honored. This is our hope. This is our purpose. Let us pray. Father in heaven, pray that you will help us to fulfill all that you have called us to do. We are prone to 
selfishness. We are prone to self-justification, to laziness, to apathy. We are prone to leave off responsibilities for others. But Father, you have given each and every one of us authority within the church to do what you call. I pray, O Lord, that you would give us wisdom for the task at hand. Not merely that a church may be well run. Not merely that we may grow. But our Lord, our heart's desire is that the gospel may go. That your name would be magnified in our area and in our world through us and in spite of us. Father, work in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.